All right, episode four, here we go. Here's the tease. So they argued their hypotheses eloquently. They presented them forcefully. But at the end of the book, we find God Almighty lining them up and verbally pulling their pants down and drawing the word loser on their foreheads with a Sharpie. Congratulations. Through the powerful providence of a benevolent benefactor, you've stumbled onto this delicious digital bouillabaisse. Hosted by yours truly, hipster grandfather, David A. Holland. Here, we explore the too-good-to-be-true, poorly understood, badly neglected realities of what Jesus actually launched 2,000 years ago. A new covenant. A better covenant based on better promises. So... Check your religion at the door, grab a beverage, grab a Bible, strap in, gird your loins. This is the new and better podcast. Today, we tackle one of the most difficult but important subjects on the whole planet. One that has been sorely vexing philosophers and theologians and other large-brained humans for a couple of thousand years. They call it the problem of evil. Regular people call it, uh, our normals call it, if God is good and loves people, why is there a constant crap storm raining down in the world? Getting to a satisfying answer will require waltzing into another theological minefield, the issue of God's sovereignty. But hang in here with me. I think you'll come away with an understanding that is comforting, life-giving, and will move you closer to God. Ready? The oldest book in the Bible to wrestle with the question of why bad things happen to good people is the book of Job. I said the oldest book in the Bible, not the first. Each of Job's well-meaning friends had an elaborately constructed theological explanation for the epic crap storm they had just watched their good friend go through. So they argued their hypotheses eloquently. They presented them forcefully. But at the end of the book, we find God Almighty lining them up and verbally pulling their pants down and drawing the word loser on their foreheads with a Sharpie. God was apparently insufficiently impressed with their theological arguments. From then until now, Spiritual and or religious folks have been irresistibly drawn to making sense of tragedy. Mr. Moth, meet Mr. Flame. This is Moth. You two should get together. Why the attraction? Earthquakes, tsunamis, pandemics, terrorist attacks, drunk drivers, and terrible news at the doctor's office. Whatever form it takes, tragedy tends to bring out the armchair theologian in many. And I understand why. For one thing, it's in the aftermath of one of these when we're most likely to hear people impugning God's character. We hear people uttering questions like, well, if there is, as you Christians claim, a benevolent God in charge of the universe, how is it that he allows things like this to happen? Or we hear others using the opportunity to just reject our faith altogether. And we like God. We've, we've chosen to align ourselves with his cause. And we want others to come over to his cause as well. So when people start talking trash about him, we tend to rush to his defense. On top of this is another very human tendency. It's rooted in our insecurities. 
And that's to feel personally rejected when someone rejects the thing upon which we've built our entire lives. Our reaction tends to be to rush in and passionately defend our choice by defending God. We can't resist the urge to become God's PR agent, explaining him and improving his image. Of course, this requires addressing thorny theological issues like the fall, the nature of God's sovereignty, and how it comports with man's free will. And these are questions with which Christendom's best minds have been grappling since the first century. Nevertheless, faced with a doubter or a skeptic pointing to tragedy, few believers can resist rushing in to explain it all in two minutes or less. Here's the problem with all of that. First of all, God is not insecure. His self-esteem is not fragile. He's been handling rejection with grace and patience for quite a long time now. Sometimes when the doubters and the fist shakers get really fierce and feisty, God finds it amusing. See Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Furthermore, doubters and pointy-headed skeptics are rarely won over by intellectual arguments. Although Paul did attempt that thing at Mars Hill, but with only mixed success. The Bible makes it pretty clear that our primary weapons of persuasion are these, love and power. Our trouble is that the brand of Christianity most of the American church displays right now is somewhat deficient in one or both of these commodities. Finally, I think most Christians have a deeply flawed, oversimplistic view of God's sovereignty to begin with which means that when they go to explain tragedy to doubters and cranks, they simply don't know what they're talking about. I believe this pervasive and flawed view of God's sovereignty keeps most Christians from praying as often and as effectively as God intended. And I suspect it's turning a whole generation of postmodern young people away from God. So, Davy boy, you're probably saying, in lightness, where has most of the church gone wrong? Well, I'll present what I believe to be the answer to that question right after page two. Hey, friends and neighbors, my latest devotional, Praying Grace for Women, 55 Meditations and Declarations for Beloved Daughters of God, is out. And you need to run, not walk, your clicky finger over to your favorite online bookseller and grab it. Do it now. I'll wait. Oh, and, and while you're at it, grab my previous devotional, Praying Grace. I promise you they'll deepen your understanding and experience of all Jesus accomplished for you through his sacrifice. Now, back to today's big topic. As I said in the previous segment, I believe a pervasive and flawed view of God's sovereignty keeps most Christians from praying as often and as effectively as God intended. And I suspect it's turning a whole generation of postmodern young people away from God. Remember that massive tsunami that hit Japan back in 2011? I recall seeing shortly afterwards a replay of MSNBC's Martin Bashir interviewing pastor author Rob Bell. And the interview went viral on the interwebs. Bell had a controversial book out at the time, so he was making the rounds on TV. Well, I mention it because 
The opening question Bashir asked Bell strikes at the heart of what I want to get at today. Bashir framed a question that encapsulates this age-old, if God is good, dot, 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 problem of evil thing. Bashir said, before we talk about the book, just help us with this tragedy in Japan. He's talking about the tsunami. Which of these is true? Bashir asked. God is all-powerful, but doesn't care about the people of Japan, and therefore their suffering. Or, he does care about the people of Japan, but is not all-powerful. Which one is it? Well, here, Bashir does a pretty clever job of concisely summarizing the logical conundrum that has plagued thinkers for centuries, and in recent years caused hundreds of thousands of young people raised in Christian homes to abandon the faith of their parents. As a parent of three millennials myself, I heard my girls when they were younger mention numerous Christian friends at their schools and colleges who were questioning everything about their faith as a direct result of grappling with this if God is sovereign problem of evil thing. You know, for decades, media mogul Ted Turner pointed to the slow, painful death of his sister when he was a boy as his justification for his agnosticism and hostility to Christianity. By the way, in later years, he softened his rhetoric and apologized. So if there is a loving God, dot, 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 why, dot, dot, dot. Well, today we've had several generations of postmodern individuals who've traveled Bashir's road of logic. They say, you Christians tell me that God exists and that he loves all mankind. Well, have you looked around? Reconcile mass starvation, human trafficking, and tsunamis with your concept of a good God. As with Bashir's question posed to Rob Bell, there is a certain logical tidiness to that question. The problem is that all logical constructs stand upon some presuppositions that, or assumptions, premises, or givens. A logical argument can actually be airtight and false, because if only one of those assumptions underlying it is false, sound logic leads you to a false conclusion. Here's a silly example. If one assumes that the earth is flat, it is quite logical to be nervous about sailing too far in one direction, lest one fall off the edge. That's sound logic built upon a flawed assumption. Now, the insidious thing about presuppositions is that they tend to remain buried in our worldviews, hidden, unexamined, and unquestioned. The fact is, the very reason that we have liberals and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats, AOC and MTG, Alec Baldwin and Adam Baldwin, it's not because half of the population is irrational or crazy. In the vast majority of cases, two people who disagree are both reaching logical, reasonable positions built on differing and largely unexamined presuppositions that they hold to be true. Now, here's why I went through all of that. There is, in my humble opinion, a false assumption, false presupposition about God's sovereignty underlying most people's logic about God. 
This faulty premise is shared by both Christians and non. And I call that false assumption the Bruce Almighty model. Let me explain. Underlying the doubts of most postmodern skeptics is a key assumption about any being in the role of God. The assumption is that God gets exactly what he wants in every spot on earth in every second of every day. And this is what Bashir meant when he used the term all-powerful. The vast majority of Americans, Christian and otherwise, assume the answer to that question is yes. This is basically the American pop culture Hollywood sitcom concept of God. Pulling all the strings, hands on all the levers, including the levers of human action and human choice. In the movie, Bruce Almighty, Jim Carrey's title character gets to become God for a couple of weeks. As a result, he finds himself with the power to make anything happen he desires, including the power to take control of a rival's body and force him to make a fool of himself on camera. It's a very funny scene with Steve Carell, by the way. This Hollywood view of God as having unlimited freedom of action on the earth and in history the belief that everything is happening just as God has ordained right down to the granular level of the child molestations that are almost certainly taking place in various places around the planet as I speak these very words is shared by most American Christians who just simply haven't thought too deeply about these questions. We're taught that God is sovereign and as the Bible makes clear he is but most of us go on to define that sovereignty in the cartoonish Hollywood terms described above. This view fails to properly build upon three fundamental presuppositions or factors. The effects of the fall, the gift of free will, and God's self-limiting character. In my humble view, the Calvinists have a good handle on point one, the effects of the fall, and their Arminian brethren across the aisle have an important grasp on point two, free will. But I haven't heard anyone significant, and I'm not significant properly, in my view, articulate point three, God being self-limited by his own goodness and righteousness. Confused? Well, that's okay. Hang with me. The clouds are about to part. To hear many Christians talk about God's sovereignty, you get the impression that Romans 8.28 contains a period after the word things. That is, and we know God causes all things. Of course, there is no period there. The verse says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That is something very different. One of the unique characteristics of us humans is our capacity for cognitive dissonance. That is the ability to hold two completely incompatible and conflicting beliefs simultaneously. We all do it, but some of you guys are clearly much better at it than I am. So it shouldn't surprise us to observe that most evangelical Christians will answer a robust yes to both of the following questions. Does God give humans free will? the ability to choose or reject God's expressed will. Yes, amen. 
Does God's sovereignty mean that everything happens for a reason and that God either causes or permits every event at every moment in every place on earth as part of his plan? Of course, again, yes. A little bit of logical thought will reveal that both of these propositions cannot possibly be true. I'm convinced a flawed, simplistic view of God's sovereignty is robbing believers of much of the motivation to pray and the ability to pray effectively. Even worse, it's needlessly causing entire generations of people to dismiss Christianity's message of a loving God who sent his son to die for a sinful world. Remember Martin Bashir's question for Rob Bell? Now, I was a debater back in my college days and therefore know how to argue two different sides of a proposition. If pressed, I could easily cite scripture to support either one of the above questions. On one hand, there are dozens of Bible verses and stories that make explicit man's freedom to reject God's will and go his own way. Choose this day who you will serve, Joshua challenged the Israelites. Jesus himself said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven. On the other hand, many scriptures speak of God's infinite power to produce his desired outcomes. He declares the end before the beginning, Isaiah 46, 10. Indeed, Paul devotes the entire ninth chapter of Romans in the course of trying to help the church at Rome know how to think about the Jewish people, to declaring that God gets what he wants. So which is it? Yes. I'm satisfied that a proper biblical understanding of how things currently work in the universe can reconcile this seemingly irreconcilable dilemma and do so without requiring either cognitive dissonance or just throwing one's hands up at the air and saying, it's a paradox. As I mentioned a moment ago, making sense of all this requires an understanding of three things. Free will and God's corresponding stewardship dominion mandate to man over creation. The fall of both man and creation. And three, God's self-limiting righteousness. Now it would take a book to completely unpack these three elements. And I may just write that book someday. But in short, the Genesis account shows us God legally, covenantally, delegating authority, rights, and responsibilities to man over the earth. Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is a delegation of stewardship authority accompanied by a dominion mandate. This takes us to the second reality, the fall, which subjected both mankind and all of nature to some pretty ugly effects. Since that day, lots of bad things have been happening on this planet. Many of those bad things are the product of evil choices made by fallen people. Other bad things are the result of a curse-wracked creation groaning for a form of redemption and restoration itself. So why, after things got so horribly fouled up, 
God being God and all, did he not immediately jump in and hit the undo button or the fix it button or simply blow the whole thing up and start all over again? Well, the answer lies in the third item on that list above, God's self-limiting righteousness. God is holy, righteous, and above all, good. Given his character, he could not possibly create a universe built on righteous law and principle and then toss all that aside when those laws got inconvenient. That's something I'd do. God, on the other hand, initiated a multi-thousand-year plan to bring about the restoration and renewal of both man and nature. It was a plan that scrupulously followed the rules and laws established before the very beginning. It was a brilliant plan that didn't violate God's delegation of authority and dominion to man. You know, there's an old philosophy 101 brain teaser that asks, can God make a rock so big he can't move it? Well, the truth is nothing can limit God except his own character. God is self-limited by his goodness and justness. And that is why there's no period after the word things in Romans 8.28. God does not cause all things, but he is so smart, so powerful, so unimaginably creative that in spite of all the bad things put in motion by our choices, an outlaw enemy, and a broken creation, God still causes all things to work together for our good. He's that smart. He leaves us free to choose, yet also knows how we will choose in any given situation. And in an infinite number of permutations of that situation created by the free will choices of others, which he also knows in advance how they will choose. So, let's put all of this together and apply it to how we, God's people, should approach prayer and deal with heartache. But first, page three. Hey, if you're watching this on my YouTube channel, may I ask you to exercise your God-given free will and hit the subscribe button. It's the right choice. Or if you're listening on one of the podcast platforms, jump over to the YouTube and subscribe. You'll not only be able to hear the soothing tones of my voice, but also take in the soothing perfect roundness of my head. So now, Back to solving the toughest philosophy and theology problem of the ages. In less than 30 minutes. Up to this point, I've tried to lay the groundwork for a fresh way to think about what is widely called God's sovereignty. The typical believer's conception of God's sovereignty lies somewhere between the powers displayed by Jim Carrey's character in Bruce Almighty and Samantha Stevens on the old sitcom Bewitched. But as I pointed out in the previous post, this view doesn't account for mankind's God-granted freedom to choose, nor the self-limiting nature of God's character in the light of his legal grant of stewardship and dominion to mankind. It'd be like a business owner making you the manager of a business and then still making every single minute decision every day. An owner who did that hadn't really delegated any authority at all. But God is a more just owner than that. And he's not capable of cheating at the game he created. 
The scriptures about God's sovereignty and about man's power to choose create an apparent paradox I've mentioned before. Those who believe that God is always getting his way and that every outcome has been predetermined by God also find themselves without much incentive to pray. I'll address that issue directly before I close. And I believe the biblical path out of that paradox is to make a distinction between what I call God's macro-sovereignty and the concept of micro-sovereignty. I'll try to explain that in fewer than a thousand words. The typical evangelical Christian on the street assumes God is behind every event in her day, that he is either the direct cause of the event or that he allows the event because it fits into his plan for her life. And this is what I call micro-sovereignty. This theology usually emerges after a tragedy. Well-intentioned believers offer it in the form of comfort to themselves or to others after something heartbreaking has happened. His ways are higher than our ways. You just have to believe this happened for a reason. My personal favorite, God did this because he wanted you to be able to minister to other people who have had this same horrific thing happen to them. Sound familiar? I trotted some version of these out myself on more than one occasion back in my younger days. Usually the recipient of this brand of comfort is too polite or grief-shocked to challenge that logic with something like, Hold on. So God arranged for my kid to get hit by a drunk driver because he's allowing other people's kids to get hit by drunk drivers too? And they need a minister? But wait, he wouldn't need me to minister to these grief-stricken parents if he didn't allow those kids to be killed in the first place, right? So seriously, what the ever-loving Hades? I just mentioned another logic problem confronted by holders of the micro-sovereignty paradigm. Why pray? Seriously, if God is getting his preferred outcome at the micro level every second of every day, what is the point of praying? Why did Jesus, after the disciples requested a clinic in effective praying, instruct them to pray, quote, Father, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Why would Jesus repeatedly say, ask the Father, whatever you ask the Father in my name, ask what you will. Some micro-sovereignteists have at least attempted to come up with an answer to that question, why pray? As I heard a preacher on the radio say a few months ago, prayer doesn't change God, it changes us. Well, that sounds quite lofty and spiritual and profound when you hear it, then you think about the implications and it just falls apart. Of course, prayer doesn't change God, it's a red herring. The question is, does prayer change things? This view is basically saying that prayer is the spiritual equivalent of running on a treadmill. You don't actually get anywhere, but hey, it's good for you. Here's an alternative view. What if God's sovereignty is of the, the macro variety? And what if God's micro-sovereignty is limited? Limited by his grant of free will to man. Limited by his delegation of legal stewardship rights and authority over the planet to man. And most of all, limited by his own righteousness and character. Again, he's too holy to break the rules he established. 
As I suggested a moment ago, God is self-limited by his own character, his justness, preventing him from violating the legal structure upon which he framed the universe and placed man within it. Nevertheless, the Bible is absolutely clear that God is moving history, capital H, history, toward an end of his choosing. He has both foreknown and foreordained the way everything winds up. His intellect and his power are so unimaginably vast that he can process the free will choices of 8 billion human inhabitants and the effects of a fallen creation and the activities of a rogue outlaw enemy and still accomplish his plans and purposes in the earth and faithfully fulfill the promise of Romans 8.28 to every believer. What a mighty, extraordinary God Who can do that? Adopting the paradigm I just outlined causes much of the paradoxical confusion and contradiction described earlier just to evaporate. And it causes many previously mysterious passages of the Bible to suddenly make sense. For example, why pray? Because God needs us to pray. Because he has chosen to need us. That's the nature of granting dominion stewardship. Our asking God to move isn't an empty or meaningless exercise. It opens legal, judicial windows through which he can move. He can move provision, power, and micro-outcomes. That is the revelation behind Charles Wesley's admission. The longer I go in this faith, the more convinced I am that God does nothing except in response to believing prayer. It's the revelation behind Jesus' words in the model prayer, quote, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's an invitation to partner with God to accomplish his plans and purposes in the earth. This restores what must be the cornerstone of our faith, confidence in the goodness of God. You see, one of the most frequently repeated phrases in all the Bible is this song of praise. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. That phrase first appears in 1 Chronicles 16.34. It reappears in various forms in 1 Chronicles 16.41, 2 Chronicles 5.13, Psalm 105, Psalm 107.1, Psalm 118.1. Psalm 118.29 and Psalm 136.1. Oh yeah, and Psalm 145.9 and Jeremiah 33.11 and Nahum 1.7. There's scarcely another phrase in all the Bible as frequently repeated as the Lord is good. Perhaps we should take notice of that. Faith and trust in the utter goodness of God is the cornerstone of a stable, mature faith. That means not wrongly laying the blame for tragedy, heartache, and atrocity at his feet. On the contrary, the Father has paid a horrific price to patiently unfold a plan to undo man's mistake, the one that unleashed all of this heartache. Which brings us back to the conundrum Martin Bashir asked Rob Bell, the one I referenced at the top of this diatribe. And let me remind you, Bashir challenged Bell to choose, quote, 
God is all-powerful because he doesn't care about the people of Japan and therefore they're suffering, or he does care about the people of Japan but is not all-powerful. Which one is it? If you've hung with me this far, I suspect you know now how I would respond to that challenge. I would say, Mr. Bashir, your use of the term all-powerful indicates that you have a common but cartoonish conception of God's latitude to act in a fallen, broken world. But I can assure you that he cares desperately about the Japanese people. There is no message in the earthquake and no lesson in the tsunami. God delivered his message on a barren hillside outside of Jerusalem roughly 2,000 years ago. With those with ears to hear, they hear it say, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercies endure forever. Okay, let's wind this up, shall we? A while back, I posted a cranky, scoldy note on Facebook after reading a heartfelt and transparent essay by ESPN writer and host Jason Wilde. In it, Wilde opened up about battling darkness and depression after he and his wife lost a baby about halfway through the pregnancy. In it, without anger or bitterness, he mentioned how profoundly unhelpful it was to have well-meaning Christians, and he is not one, come up to him and try to help by saying things like, God only gives you as much as you can handle. On Facebook, I linked to his essay and wrote, Fellow Christians of planet Earth, stop trying to comfort the grieving by saying God will never give you more than you can handle. It's crappy theology, and it's not comforting. Stop it. And I meant that, and here's why. This advice falsely positions God as the great cosmic dispenser of misery and suffering. What's worse, it depicts him as carefully monitoring how much misery and suffering we can each handle without completely collapsing under the weight to keep himself from overdoing it. It encourages us to imagine him viewing our misery capacity as some sort of dashed line at the top of a measuring cup. Should our capacity to handle heartache increase a bit, well, then God is surely there with an eyedropper of pain ready to add more until we're topped off again, but never to the point that it rises above the line. It's hard to count how many ways this is wrong. But let me hit a few of the highlights. One, it misidentifies the source of evil and suffering. We live in a fallen creation filled with fallen humans operating with the gift and power of free will. That flooded home, the miscarried pregnancy, the child lost to the drunk driver, the housewife with the swollen black eye, the stolen iPhone or the irritable bowel all of these and an endless list of other heartaches and headaches are a result of either one broken creation or the other broken people. And of course, there's God's raging enemy, Satan, who is actively at work in and through both. 
Second, God is about healing pain, not causing it. Restoring, not destroying. Jesus told us that if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. John 14, 9. He said he only did the things he saw the Father doing. John 5, 19. Thus it's revealing that Jesus broke up every funeral he came across, healed every person who requested it. Wherever he encountered human suffering, he relieved it. He said, the thief, Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but that he had come to provide abundant life. John 10.10 10. Thirdly, it distorts the concept of God's sovereignty. That heartbroken young man from ESPN really believes God took the life of his baby. And every would-be comforter who offered up, this was part of God's plan, or he won't give you more than you can handle, seems to agree. God did this to you, they're affirming. But cheer up, it's all for the best. One of the most common and disastrous theological concepts loose in the world is that child's cartoon view of God's sovereignty that suggests that God is getting exactly what he wants every second of every day in every place on planet earth. Dear friend, he isn't. A lost, hurting, dying world is understandably reluctant to run to a God whom they believe to be the author of their deepest pain. But that's simply not an accurate picture of who he is or why they've been hurt. He is good, and he has gone to extraordinary lengths at unspeakable personal cost to meet us at the point of our suffering and offer healing and hope. Perhaps the next time an unbeliever has his or her heart shattered by loss, a more comforting and more theologically sound response might be, I'm so sorry that happened. How painful that must be. Let me walk through this with you, and please know that you can take that pain to a God who loves you because he's not your problem He's your only hope for healing. That's it for this outing. Join me here next time for the new and better podcast. I'm David Holland.